Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. In today's episode, Trade for Peace, a European tale, we are very honored to have with us His Excellency José Manuel Barroso, a European leader who, among his many high-level positions, served as president of the European Commission, and in this capacity, accepted the Nobel Peace Prize of the European Union in 2012. José Manuel served as prime minister of Portugal from 2002 to 2004, and as president of the European Commission from 2004 to 2014. Since January 2021, he chairs the board of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, replacing in this position the current Director General of the WTO, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Awela. Among many other distinguished positions, he also served as Minister of Foreign Affairs of Portugal, and in this capacity, he became the mediator of the peace process for Angola, and he was one of the initiators under the auspices of the Secretary General of the United Nations of the negotiations which led to the referendum for Timor-Leste's independence. While serving as Prime Minister of Portugal, he was invited by his European peers to be a candidate to the leadership of the European Commission and was elected by the European Parliament for two terms as President of the European Commission. In these functions, he committed special efforts to the enlargement and the incorporation of new members in the European Union which during his presidency grew from 15 to 28 member states. He has received numerous honorary distinctions from countries around the world. Among these, there are 35 decorations, including from Portugal, Brazil, Spain, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom. José Manuel, welcome to Trade for Peace. My pleasure. Thank you, Axel, for your kind invitation. Thank you for joining us, Jose Manuel. Let us start with a question I ask all of our guests. What does trade for peace mean to you? There is a, a broad concept and a more specific one. The broad concept means that increasing trade, bilateral trade, and also integration in global trade promotes peace between countries. That's the basic idea. As simple as that. Trade promotes peace, can promote peace, free and fair trade. Uh, Of course, uh, we know that that's not the only factor, and we are not naive. We know that there are other factors in international community, and political factors may have, of course, a very detrimental effect and may lead to uh, what sometimes become catastrophic situations. But generally speaking, we can say that trade promotes peace. This is in fact confirmed 
by empirical data and by academic studies that have focused their attention on series sufficiently long of trade between countries, either contiguous countries or more distant countries. So besides this broad concept, trade promotes peace, when uh, we speak today about uh, trade for peace, we are also referring to a WTO initiative process and also a network that has as its objective to support uh, fragile uh, conflict countries to um, be able to join the WTO or to integrate in the global trade through research, to public awareness, to uh, also uh, capacity building. So there is a concrete process now launched by the WTO that we call Trade for Peace. And that, of course, besides the overall concept of uh, Trade for Peace that I already mentioned, what I consider more important. Thank you, Jose Manuel. Now, from your very rich experience, let me first focus on the European project. In 2012, the European Union was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for helping to transform most of Europe from a continent of war to a continent of peace. Indeed, the European continent went from devastation in the Second World War to the EU becoming one of the world's strongest economic powers. In your view, what was the secret recipe of the EU that led the continent from post-war ruin to become the biggest trading entity and aid donor in the world with a significant economic power and the world's most progressive social system? And do you think that there is lesson to learn here that could be applied elsewhere in the world in conflict situations? So, first of all, since you mentioned the Nobel Peace Prize to the European Union that I had the honor to receive on behalf of the European Union, let me mention a quote I've made in my speech accepting that prize. I've quoted Spinoza, a great philosopher, and he said famously, peace is not just absence of war. Peace is a virtue, is a state of mind, a disposition for benevolence, for confidence, for justice. I think it's very important. Peace is not absence of war. Peace is a state of mind. I believe trade can contribute to that state of mind. Because when you enter in contact with others, there is greater likelihood of understanding that person or those persons and to establish relationships. So you are interested in a cooperation. So this is why I believe this concept was so important for the European Union. What is the originality of the European Union or the European community that, as you said, was created after the Second World War? And those two world wars that were, in fact, the most terrible mankind has known were, in fact, European wars. They started as European wars. And all the history of Europe has been over centuries and centuries, history of conflict and wars. And so the vision of the founding fathers of the European community, its originality was, let's reach a political goal through economic means. The political goal was peace, the highest political goal and political value we can have as organized global community. Peace is the goal. 
But to achieve it, we are going to do it through economic means, through economic interdependence, economic integration, creating a common market, a customs union. And that's why there were six countries that have done it. In fact, before creating the European Economic Community, they created the European Community for coal and steel, because coal and steel were the materials for war. And they gave the authority to trade in coal and steel and production to a supranational authority. It was no longer the governments responsible. They abdicated for their sovereignty and they gave it to a high authority. That was, in fact, the predecessor of the European Commission. So this is basically the idea. Let's achieve peace through economic means, through economic integration and interdependence. And in fact, in the declaration that created this movement, the famous Schuman Declaration, name is the name of a foreign minister from France, was a proposal he made to Germany. It was said the goal was to make war impossible or even unthinkable. And the goal was until now attained. In fact, the original six members of the European community up to the 28, now 27 after Brexit, there was no more wars between those countries. So I think it is a great, successful project, one of the most beautiful projects in the history of international relations. Now, your second question, can it apply to other countries, other regions? I mean, I think, of course, each situation is a situation and we should not have the pretension now to teach others how to do it. I've been speaking about that with many leaders around the world. Many of them put that question to me when I was in office and also afterwards. And in fact, we have already some successful cases of regional integration, not so deep and so, so advanced institutionally, but they are successful cases. ASEAN, in Southeast Asia, is a great case. We have Mercosul, and in Africa, we have several regional cases of integration from ECOWAS to SADCC or SADC. And by the way, and there is the African Union that in fact, to a large extent, is inspired by the European Union. For some reason, the executive body of the African Union is called the African Union Commission. And I've worked with the African Union, and in fact, we usually said it's our sister organization with the aim of promoting pan-European trade as well for Africa. By the way, Africa issue is very important here because precisely part of the problem in the past was that the colonial powers, they controlled the trade with their colonies. And so that's one of the reasons why we need, in fact, the WTO, and we need a global order for trade, is to avoid any kind of discrimination and to have fairness from a global point of view. So I believe regional integration can be, if it is open regional integration, if it is not creating region, economic regions too close to others, because that would be detrimental. But what we call open regionalism is a good contribution in terms of trade, if, for instance, the agreements that are made are made what we call usually WTO compatible. Mm -hmm. And I think this can be a good inspiration and I think, to some extent, this is already being an inspiration for other parts of the world. Of course, they have to take in consideration their own specific 
conditions, geographical, historic, cultural, and so on. But the idea of having a community of countries that share something based on their geography, that they can share something in terms of their goals and to achieve it through regional integration, I think that idea is a very fruitful one. And the European Union has given an important contribution for its success. Fantastic. Thank you, Jose Manuel, for these are a very interesting insight. And it is true, making war impossible or unthinkable through regional integration is the best means for securing these cooperations among states. Now, I would like us to turn to your leadership within the EU. Under your leadership, besides several other achievements, the EU almost doubled in size from 15 to 28 member states and went deeper in its integration process with the adoption of the Lisbon Treaty. And you successfully dealt with the negative consequences of the 2008 global financial crisis. Being in the leader's seat of the EU institution that initiates change in the European Union, what was your impression? The deepening and widening the integration lead to better economic resilience in the European Union. That's interesting that you put that question to me, Axel, because very often, including in European circles, some people say that widening is in contradiction with deepening. I completely disagree. <laughs> the reality is that today we have a European Union of 27, since the uh, UK decided freely to leave. But today, institutionally, we are more integrated than we were when we were, for instance, 12. I remember because I was in the government of my country at that time when Portugal joined the European Union in 86, 1st of January. It was when the European Union went from 10 to 12 members. Portugal and Spain joined the same day. And if you look at the level of integration, economic, uh, in trade, institutionally, in legal terms, it's certainly today more integrated than it was before. I don't mean that there are not problems and challenges. There are related to enlargement, so-called enlargement of the European Union. But precisely because we have enlarged, precisely because there was a widening of the European Union, we had to take some decisions, like the Treaty of Lisbon, to simplify and to streamline the decision-making process so to make it work. In fact, there was a, the idea was to have a European constitution. It failed was not ratified by all countries, but then basically we saved that process with the so-called Lisbon Treaty. So, and that's important to understand. The European Union is something in the making. It's not perfect. By definition, it's incremental. Sometimes there are steps ahead, sometimes there are steps behind, but if you look at it from a, let's say, strategic perspective, where it was, where it is today, certainly today is stronger has a continental dimension that it had not when it was created only with six founding members. The second question you asked to me was about the resilience during the crisis, namely the financial crisis. Once again, the doomsayers were wrong. You remember that at that time, many analysts, including very qualified scholars, academic commentators, were predicting Greece leaving the euro, the single uh, the currency of the European Union, the Economic and Monetary Union. 
and many were saying that euro is going to collapse. I was in many of those. I was in all those G20 and G8 and G7 meetings when they were asking us, uh, what are you doing to save the euro? The reality is that also because of our economic interdependence, even the rich countries, they understood it was in their interest to avoid those countries that were in more difficulties, more vulnerable, that they could remain in the economic and monetary union. Because if Greece was leaving the euro or other countries were leaving because of, a, let's say, a failure to make their payments, in that case, we could have, in fact, a disintegration of Europe. So that's another reason. It increases the resilience of the European Union, the fact that we have very, let's say, advanced level of economic integration and interdependence. So now, in the pandemic, for instance, we have seen that the governments of the European Union, they have decided unanimously, for instance, to create common debt. And now it's, uh, the European Commission is issuing common debt in the markets for a plan for economic recovery. And that's also possible because it was understood that if there is an economic crisis in some of our countries, that economic crisis can have a very negative impact on all the others. So another reason to justify the process and some progress in the process of European integration. And this level of cooperation is translating into how EU partners with third countries. I would like you to touch on that in terms of how is European integration and partnerships with third countries contributing to achieving stability and peace on the continent and more broadly in the world? What do you believe is the role of the trade and the WTO? First of all, on European Union. The European Union is in itself a multilateral organization. Now 27 members. And so by definition, it's a permanent negotiation. So the European Union, I think, has a deep interest in keeping the world and the international order as multilateral as possible. And I think this is good for the world. I think it is good for the world. The majority of countries in the world are not very big powers. They are medium-sized, small countries. It's good for the world that we are not dominated by external forces and that all countries, big or small, rich or poor, old or new, they deserve the same respect. They have exactly the same dignity. This is very important. So from that point of view, the European Union, while not being perfect, because I can tell you the European Union is not perfect, and I'm no longer speaking on behalf of the European Union, I remain very committed European, but I'm also a citizen of the world. And I think, uh, now I can speak to you with full intellectual independence. European Union is not perfect, but generally speaking, is a force for the good, globally. And as you've mentioned, not only in terms of trade, but also in terms of uh, development aid and the attitudes it takes from fighting climate change to supporting uh, sustainable development. So this is, I think, something that we should be proud without being arrogant, but being proud. About WTO, the WTO, I remember I was in Marrakesh in 94 when we decided to create the WTO that was, it came into being in 95. I was at that time foreign minister of my country. And what is the basic idea of WTO? It's also about uh, 
multilateralism. It's about having global rules, the respect of international law, the rule of law at global level, to respect the principle of non-discrimination. So it's, it's fundamental, a matter of justice. So of course there is an economic dimension. I believe that sometimes in the public debate, some people look at trade only from the economic point of view. Certainly there is a very important economic point of view, but there is a, a deeper meaning in trade. And the deeper meaning in the WTO is about justice in international relations. It's about knowing that rules should be respected. That's why I believe we should have a strongly institutionalized WTO. In general, we should have a strongly institutionalized international order where we have some rules that are commonly accepted and they are respected and implemented. And this, I believe, is more important now than ever. Because let's be honest, we are seeing some frictions now geopolitically, and that's one reason why we more than ever should push for having clear framework institutionalized of rules from trade to other issues that are of the highest importance for the global community. Thank you for your insights, Jose Manuel. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Now, I would like us to turn to WTO accessions. As you may know, several fragile and conflict-affected states, including least developed countries, are now engaged in the process of acceding to the WTO. Among them, one especially close to your heart, since you were part of its birth, Timor-Leste. From the experience of the EU, what would be your message to them as they are engaging in regional integration processes and joining the multilateral trading system? For instance, to the countries in the Western Balkans who are in the process of acceding to the EU and the WTO, and in your view, how can WTO membership help them achieve peace and post-conflict recovery? And what special message would you have for Timor-Leste as a former prime minister of Portugal? So several questions. First of all, the European Union has a network of relations, including countries that we believe can join the European Union, the Balkan countries in general. They are in the process, either they are formal candidates or they are, let's call them candidates to become candidates. And we hope those countries will become members of the European Union. And already the fact that they are trying to align all their systems with the European Union is a contribution, including for better relations among them. And I could give you many examples of that, including from my past experience. And there are also other relations that we do not see in the, let's say, foreseeable future as uh, members of the European Union, but with which we can make association agreements from Ukraine to Georgia, Moldova, and others. And for those countries, what we can offer is political association and economic integration. So, and that's going on. And I think basically it has been a force for support 
of these countries. To the Balkan countries that expire, and some of them are already candidates to become members of the European Union. In fact, we already have, for instance, two members of the European Union that were members of former Yugoslavia. And now they are very successful countries inside the European Union, Slovenia and Croatia. And in fact, I believe the fact that they were becoming members of the European Union helped them and is helping the region to stabilize after also the terrible wars we have seen in that region, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but not only in Bosnia, in other countries in that region. So this is, this is very important. For uh, Timur-Leste, a country that is, in fact is very close to my heart, I visited many times before and after independence, I think it is important that Timor-Leste becomes as much as possible integrated, not only in regional organizations, but in a global trade. Of course, we know, and that is also important to mention, that one of the conditions for regional integration is that different countries can compete and are able to resist to some kind of competition. So they have to invest in the resilience of their systems. They have to invest also in what we usually call capacity building. And the, the richer countries, those who are more advanced, they should support that. Uh, look at European Union, one of the also secrets of European Union was some redistribution. We have a, a customs union, we have a common market, but there is also regional policy and there are cohesion funds and they are huge. So the richer regions support the less rich regions, more vulnerable regions, so that they can upgrade their capacity and they can also be a player in the regional integration, in this case of the European Union. So this is very important because, of course, sometimes it's very difficult, very challenging when you put in the same level, in the same group, of regional integration, countries that have very different, let's say, uh, economic capabilities. So the idea of supporting them, the idea of themselves also making everything they can to upgrade, to upgrade not only from a trade point of view, but from an institutional point of view, from a know-how point of view, for their public administration, the benchmarking they can do, all these processes is a very delicate process. But I believe that is the way that they should go and pursue if they want to become successful from an economic and social point of view. Thank you, Jose Manuel. Now, I would like us to move on to the COVID-19 pandemic and the issue of vaccine equity and the role of the WTO. You're moving on to a new role as chair of the board of Gavi. Congratulations. As the chair of the of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, one can say that you've taken on quite a challenging task at a very difficult time. How do you see the role of trade in ensuring global access to vaccines? Do you think that WTO membership can help fragile and conflict-affected countries in the quest for life-saving vaccines? Yes, I think it can, and I think it's doing that, by the way. By the way, it's uh, interesting that the new Director General of WTO, she was my predecessor, Dr. Ngozi, as chair of Gavi. And I think that uh, it could not be better from that point of view for all of us that are in favor of health, public health, 
an equity in terms of vaccination to ever at the leadership of that organization, also as a very important African woman and a leader. I think it's fundamental because the reality is that we have seen and we are still seeing vaccine nationalism and protectionism. And we have seen export restrictions. I've been raising my voice against that as well. So WTO also has a voice and a very strong voice, by the way, in terms of trade. It is, uh, uh, of course, critically important. And so everything the WTO can do to criticize and also to try to avoid those uh, practices of vaccine nationalism, not only countries that do not let export of vaccine happen, or sometimes some of the components, because it's extremely complex, vaccination. It's a vaccine is not a product. Vaccine is a process. And uh, if you are missing one of the components that one country does not let be exported, then it can affect the whole supply chain. So I think the voice of WTO is very important. By the way, I think also, in fact, there was already in one or two initiatives launched by Dr. Ngozi, uh, discussing this also with the government, but also with manufacturers. How can we increase the diversification of offer of vaccines, including, for instance, with manufacturing capacity, more manufacturing capacity in Africa? We cannot be dependent on only two or three big suppliers of vaccines globally, as we have seen. Uh, though it's, I believe, in the interest of the global community to diversify, to increase and to diversify the manufacturing capacity. And by that, I also mean afterwards the free trade and the free, let's say, delivery of vaccines all over the world. Thank you, Jose Manuel. We've come to the end of our podcast. I think this has been very informative and quite an interesting discussion. I'd like to end the podcast with one last question. So in just one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? One word, one word I would say, openness. That is what I see common in trade and in peace. And it's a very nice word, uh, openness. In my language, it's abertura. In Spanish, Italian, apertura, ouverture. In French, offenheit in German. I, I'm sorry, I don't know many languages, uh, but these ones I know. But the idea of being open, it's not just open to the trade of goods or services or capital. It's being open to people, being open to ideas, being open to the other. It's a psychological and philosophically a very important idea. Do we want an open or a closed world? If we want an open world, we need free and fair trade. But if you want peace, we need also to be open to each other. That's why I will sum up saying the idea common to peace and trade is the basic idea of openness. And that's not only in the market, it should be also in our mind and in our heart. Openness. That was Jose Manuel Barroso, chair of the Gavi board, former prime minister of Portugal, and the former president of the European Commission. Jose Manuel, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace, and good luck for this challenging year at the helm of Gavi. Now, before I close, I would like to take this opportunity to also send my prayers and thoughts to all the Trade for Peace champions from Afghanistan that we've had on this podcast. 
Mohamed Kurban Hakjo, Manisha Wafek, Sansa Kaka, Suleiman Bin Shah, and Mariam Suleiman Kiel. My deepest sympathy goes to you and your families and to all Afghans going through these difficult times. You are all in our prayers. And many thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to today's episode of Trade for Peace, The European Tale. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace.